The Apple Core Wars, a novel by Linda J. Bettenay. Synopsis. From the fertile, fruit-growing Perth Hills to a World War II prison camp, this is a saga of two men battling for survival. Entwined in the battle is hatred, then mateship, as they fight for their lives and compete for the heart of their one true love. The Apple Core Wars... Linda J. Bettany's third book tells the story of Jackie Bellamy, Charlie Parkin, and the beautiful Stella Cherini. Jackie is a wild boy from Carrigallon, Stella a nurse who defies convention, and Charlie an outsider from the enemy territory of Rowley Stone, and rival for Stella's attention. The normal hurly-burly of their early lives is contrasted against the bleak backdrop of Camp Fukuoka 14 in Nagasaki, Japan. Despite the awkward love triangle, a surprising friendship emerges when Jackie and Charlie are thrown together as prisoners of war. Their lives are further challenged by an atomic bomb and a shocking family secret. The war ends, and those who survive must return home. Bettany's beautifully crafted sentences will leave you thirsting for another reading session as you become absorbed by the characters' entangled lives. It has become standard for Bettany's storytelling to be embedded with scandal, mystery, and challenges to convention, and the Apple Corps Wars does not fall short. Her talent for overlaying history with her knowledge of the Rollestone and Carrigallon areas, where she herself grew up, brings an era back to life. Bettany extends the lives of characters introduced in her previous books, Secrets Mother's Keep and Wishes for Starlight, including Marco, Macca, Arthur, Mary, Mibbs, Eustace and Bluey as she paints a vivid picture of life in the orchards of the Perth Hills through a series of generations. She was inspired to write her latest novel by the real Parkin family where seven of eight brothers enlisted to serve overseas. About Linda. Linda J. Batney has now published three books in a secret series, fictional novels set in Western Australia. Linda was born in Rowleystone, into a pioneering family who had farmed the land since 1901 and lived in the area since 1895. Linda is editor of a community magazine, the Rowleystone Courier. Previously, Linda spent over 30 years in schools across Western Australia. Linda and Mike have two sons, Joe and Brett, two daughters-in-law, Beth and Rebecca, and three very cherished grandchildren, Lee, Violet and Mirabelle. Linda's stimulus to write her first novel, Secret's Mother's Keep, came from the discovery of an amazing true story from her husband's family past. This story was kept secret since 1928 and was only recently uncovered. Her second novel, Wishes for Starlight, based on her father's and grandfather's stories, is set largely in the Perth Hills area, a location Linda is very passionate about. The Abel Corps Wars is based around the astounding war experiences of Charlie Parkin, one of seven Parkin brothers to serve during World War II. It's a story of boyhood jealousies which morph into friendship as the POWs face up to terrible odds. Linda writes fictionalised stories based in our state's rich history. Dedication This book is dedicated to the brave Australian men and women who went off to fight in wars unaware of the brutal consequences, and to those who stayed at home and grieved for them. My thanks to the many descendants of the Parkin family of Wygonda Orchard in Rollystone, 
for allowing me to share a story based on their sacrifice. Are they really on our side? Nagasaki, Japan, Thursday, 2nd of August, 1945. Jackie and Charlie. I reckon I'd enjoy the Yanks bombing the Japs a bit better if I wasn't under their bombs, joked Jackie to his companions as they crouched in the makeshift bomb shelter at the far end of the dock. The American air raid on Nagasaki was the first in a long time. This town had never experienced a full-scale air attack, perhaps because the city's industry was concentrated in a steep, protected valley. Even in this year of widespread firebombing across many Japanese cities, their war planners naively believed this location was safe. The morning air raid caught out the small contingent of Allied POWs from Fukuoka, 14 Camp. They were a long way from familiar territory, and unaware of the designated safe areas along the wharf. The group had been sent to the dock across the harbour from the shipyards to collect some crates, provisions for the POW camp. All members of the group had been keen. Collecting provisions could mean discarded food scraps, and although they would be watched keenly, the tightness in their long-starved guts meant it would be worth any risk. Besides, it was a chance to do something different, and on this warm August day they knew the foundry would be a sweat box. On arrival they noticed the unloaded cargo on the exposed jetty jutting out at the end of the wharf. The domestic freight ship had already cast off again. It was not considered safe for ships to stay too long in ports, particularly ports near shipyards. These were considered easy targets. The hastily stacked piles of crates rested unsteadily on the bare timbers, and these were being transported to the chain of flimsy warehouses lining the dock area. A mass of Korean slave labourers swarmed around the teetering piles, being directed fiercely by Japanese overseers. Loud instructions in Japanese and grunted high-pitched responses, mixing with the thumps and bumps of frenetic activity, made this a noisy location long before the whines of the planes were heard overhead. Already the first eleven crates destined for the POW camp had been shouldered by wasted, emaciated POWs, now stumbling their way back up the dock for the long, arduous trek into the valley and then up to the camp. A trio of POWs lingered at the back of the group. They'd already survived over three years of imprisonment, and their survival skills were honed. Look keen but do as little as possible. Preserve your strength, eat whatever and wherever you could. Oh, and look out for your mates. They will be the only ones who would look out for you. All that mattered now was to be alive when the war ended. Behind this group, the tall figure of Corporal Charlie Parkin stood watching his charges. He might be in captivity, but the chain of command was clear. Charlie wasn't shirking work. He would shoulder his crate when it was his turn, but he would do so from the defensive rear. Ever cautious and protective, Charlie took his NCO responsibilities seriously. The fifty men and two guards from Fukuoka 14 heard the shrilling air raid sirens, and such a signal always meant every man for himself. Their burdens discarded, eleven prisoners and both guards sprinted to the properly constructed shelter near the Nagasaki port end of the dock. Charlie and the trio of Jackie, Pom, and Jan, Dutchie Baker, had been too far away. 
In their panicked state, they'd reasoned the overhanging steel girder work at the land end of the jutting jetty would have to provide them with enough cover. In reality, it didn't provide much protection, but it afforded them a spectacular view. The bombs rained down, concentrating on the two Mitsubishi steel mills. The spectators had been scared, but felt fairly safe. All four of these soldiers had survived many years of battle, and over much of this time their fear levels were off the Richter scale. These battle-hardened men had faced death daily, and besides, they weren't the target this time. The damage was all happening at least a mile away. Oh, barmen are all safe, muttered Jan. Looks like they've hit the steelworks. The prisoners all thought of their mates, but also said a quick thanks that they were not at their normal place of work. They'll be in the shelters, I bet. They'll be right. And the more Yanks bomb the shit out of the factories, the more the nips have been cribbled, said Jackie. And they're right in full daylight targeting Nagasaki is great news. Our side must be getting that per hand. Not long until we all go home, I reckon, mateys. Here's hoping, agreed Charlie. His war had been going on for over five years. His heart ached with thoughts of home. The Japanese guard told me Tokyo's been hit hard. The end will come soon, I reckon. Corporal Parkin's thoughts lingered for a while on the shallow trenches the POWs had been ordered to dig around Fukuoka, fording cap. The NCO feared these were for graves, and if an Allied invasion occurred, he had little doubts the guards would slaughter the prisoners before they could be liberated. His heart sank, and the bubble of panic rose in his gut at these thoughts. The group watched as the plane circled and headed southeast away from the city. It seemed the attack was over, and now they needed to sit it out and wait for the siren declaring the all-clear. At least they were unharmed. This had been a very welcome reprieve from the back-breaking drudgery of their normal routine. Hey, look at that box over there. It's split. I'm going to see if I can get my hand in. Just could be worth it, said Jackie. Not waiting to hear any words of caution from his corporal, he took off. Only fools leave a shelter before the all-clear is sounded. But fortune favours the brave, he reasoned. The crate with the split side had been dropped by one of the POWs, who'd obviously decided his own safety was more important than the load he carried. Jackie could clearly see it contained small, dry, chunky flakes of white and purple. They'd poured from the gap onto the wharf. Casting prudence to the wind like any starving man is likely to do, Jackie took a flake and put it in his mouth. Oh, yuck, he muttered, and spat the flake out in disgust. Flippin' turnip flakes, he called angrily to his mates. The prisoners were all too used to the regular broth fed to them twice per day. Turnip was the main ingredient. They all hated this vegetable with blind passion. Even in their emaciated and starved state, they were not going to be thankful to have discovered a treasure trove of turnips. Then if you want a handful... Jackie called to his mates, sarcasm dripping from his words. See what's at the top? The top board is broken too, Pom yelled back to him. Jackie levered the top board back, expecting to see more white flakes, but the upper portion of the crate was crowned with separately wrapped parcels. Not wanting to be seen, Jackie rapidly grabbed six packages, jammed the top board back into position and ran for cover.
Being caught stealing supplies would mean instant death, and Jackie was unsure how many hidden eyes had watched his brace sortie. The three waiting soldiers grabbed at the packages and quickly removed the flimsy brown paper covers. "'Look at this!' exclaimed Pom, as a bottle of sake emerged from the first pack. "'I want to enjoy sipping this while sitting around watching the sun go down.' Jan's package held two small bottles of strange-smelling sauce. He smelt it before hurling it into the depths of the ocean. "'Well, that was a waste. Inedible Chinese muck,' he said in disgust. This was a strange irony. He'd lived in the Orient for many years and was very fond of Asian food. But, as one of the lords and masters, he'd never been the cook, so he failed to understand the value of fish sauce.' the secret ingredient behind most oriental delicacies. The next two packs were filled with dried fish. Not something any of them hankered for, but they all knew the importance of protein. This was surely a gift from heaven. Right, Corporal, let's see what's in your packets, said Pom, excitedly as Charlie ripped at the wrappings. The contents were totally unexpected. Most provisions were marked with oriental writing, Ornate Chinese characters none of them could read. This contained little packets with English words on the labels. Red Cross Cadbury Chocolate Bars, clearly labelled as Ration, Chocolate, Fruit and Nut, 40 bars in every box. All four men smiled broadly at the anticipated pleasure. This was unheard of luxury. Right, boys, if we get caught with this we'll get it. So here's what we're going to do. Each of us is going to eat a handful of the little fishies, wash it down with a swig of sake, then finish off with the chocolate. We don't know how long we've got till they sound the all clear. It's usually about half an hour after the last sighting, so I reckon we've got no longer than twenty minutes. Used to making ourselves sick, said Jackie, and he started off with a swig of sake, and then put a handful of the revolting little dried fish straight into his gob. The other prisoners followed his lead. Even Corporal Parkin, who obeyed regulations scrupulously, even the rules set by his Japanese captors, could see the wisdom of this course of action. This was about survival. Their stomachs revolted. So much food after months of privation. Gluttonously, they stuffed themselves to get nutrition into their deprived bodies. By miracle, they finished the last chocolate bar and still no all-clear it sounded. They lay back on the rough-hewn wood, willing their stomachs to settle and hope the nausea and dizziness from too much rich food and sake would subside. Bloated and ill, they were silent as they tried to deal with the violent urge to vomit. "'Hey, look at the wood on this jetty, would you, Charlie?' said Jackie. "'Bloody Jarrah!' "'You're right. I'd recognise it anywhere,' replied his mate. Charlie may have been his commanding officer, but they'd known each other since childhood. An informal conversation arose frequently when they were in private. "'Well, now I got here?' asked Jackie, determined to explore this mystery. "'That's easy. We sent her here. Now it's a long way from home, just like we are. We Australians are pretty dumb. We sold cheap wooden pig onto the Japanese for years, and they used it to build planes and ships to send back against us after they declared war,' said Charlie." Oh, we've learned our lesson. From now on we shall keep our riches in our own country, said Jackie bitterly. That's a bit selfish. Does that mean you don't want to sell anything to England? 
The English need food and minerals from the colonies like Australia. We don't grow much ourselves, claimed Pom, stepping up to defend his country of origin. Oh no, I don't mean countries like England or America or even Holland. They're our allies. I mean these Asian countries. Just can't trust them. They don't think like white men, Jackie said, with a heavy dollop of colonial bigotry. Well, I'm a white man and I have a European background. From what I've seen, you can't trust anyone. Look at countries which fought on our side in the last war are on the other side in this one. Turn countries like Italy and even Japan. Holland's been at war with England many times. This time we're on the same side. Japan will be Australia's friend again sometime in the future. I bet in fifty years your kids will be talking Nippon and you'll be bringing your wife to Nagasaki for all of this, predicted Yam. I don't think so. Not me, that's for sure. When this is over, I'll never speak a civil word or a Jap again, said Jackie defiantly, and then drifted out of the conversation as the others continued to talk about historical, political skirmishes and fickle alliances. Jackie traced around the crane of the wood, willing it to reveal its history. He smelt its scent, and was sure he could detect a slight trace of Jarrah sap, away from the smells of Japanese industry and the acrid smoke of the aftermath of a bombing raid. My relatives were all woodcutters. Perhaps this sleeper was cut from a tree near home. I grew up in the Jarrah forest, he mused, bringing back memories. Jackie felt dangerously close to crying. Just want to go home. I suppose we all just want to go home. Where will home be? That's what I want to know, said Pom wistfully. The only folks I cared about lived in Singapore. I sure don't want to go back there. Pom's eyes were misty and a hardness tinged his voice. He'd seen his Chinese wife and child rounded up and slaughtered. Shot because there was no point in putting Orientals into the prison camps. There was nothing left for him in that hellhole. You could come home with us, said Jackie, cheering up again. We don't take too many Tommies, but you're pretty good. You too, Dutchie. Why don't you come to Australia too? It's not like you want to go back to the East Indies. The Japs will have wrecked everything, so you may as well come down to the Antipodes and soak up the pleasures of our lovely land. Yeah, I don't want to go back to Batavia, that's for sure. I had a good life there, but my time in the castle's awful. I don't think the Dutch will ever be welcome there again anyway. It's funny. You call me Dutchy, but I've not been to Holland since I was five. And I don't think I would like living back there either. Too cold and too many bloody tulips. I was thinking of coming to Australia after this is finished, perhaps to Sydney or Brisbane. What do you think? Well, you haven't really got a random sample here. We're both West Aussies, so of course we're going to say WA is the best. I've only been to the East once, and that was for basic training, so I'm no expert on the East Coast. Where'd you live? I went to Perth once and stayed with my aunt and down in Maylands. I like the place, said Pom. Oh, it's funny. I lived not far from there as a teenager, but I grew up in the hills above Perth. I come from a spot called Carrigullen, reminisced Jackie. Nobody's ever heard of it, but to me it's paradise. What about you, Charlie? Where did you call home? asked Pom. Yeah, Mama West Aussie, through and through. Grew up in the hills too, not far from Jackie. A place called Rileystone. Our farm was about three miles from Jackie's, as the crow flies. Wow, you two were from the same place. How unlucky that you both ended up here. There can't be many Aussies in Nagasaki, 
"'What are the odds of that?' asked Jan. "'There are twenty-two Aussies at Fukuoka, fourteen. "'I've only run into two other Sangropas. "'I suppose it's both lucky and unlucky, really. "'Unlucky to have landed in the POW camp at all. "'But it's been a comfort to share it with a mate who knew me before this mess. "'Jake and me certainly know where we want to go back to after this is all over.' said Charlie wistfully, thinking about his home again. "'So if you grew up so close to each other, were you friends before the war?' asked Jan. Suddenly Jackie and Charlie looked at each other, and a very strange sound rang out, the sound of unbridled, uncontrolled, hilarious laughter. Their mirth made an incongruous echo against the wreckage of war. The pair clung to each other in a bear hug, and their eyes filled with tears. Neither could speak. Every time their eyes met, they would start to cackle again. Pom and Yan looked on at the giggling duo, amazed and puzzled. Did I say something wrong? asked Yan with concern, creasing his face. I sometimes find English a bit puzzling. Nah, it wasn't what you said, giggled Jackie, still trying to get his words out. I'll explain, said Charlie, taking control. In truth, we knew each other really well. For most of our life, we hated each other's guts. There was great rivalry between us all our lives. When we were kids, we could only see the things that separated us. It wasn't until we grew older we saw how much unites us. So you're great friends now, obviously. Are those things that divide you all buried and forgiven? Asked Pom. This was an extremely insightful remark but both Charlie and Jackie needed to work out the answer to this crucial question for themselves before they could discuss it with others. The silence that made up their answer was swallowed by another series of explosions. This was why there had been no all clear. The American bombers had returned. This time they targeted the shipyards, straight across the harbour from where they sheltered. The first bombs exploded less than half a mile away. The fireworks lit up the already bright summer's day. The calm blue ocean glinted and danced with flame as surface fuel ignited. The group made no comment as they gazed at the mesmerising scene. This was a place where POWs were working, and elation at seeing it pulverised was tempered by thoughts about the poor blighters caught under those bombs. The next explosion was even closer. The warehouses on the wharf just to the north of the group exploded with a deafening crash. The shock wave radiated through the pylons of the jetty beneath them. Strouth! shrieked Jackie. How are your ears after that little bang? Shit! It was too bloody close, muttered Charlie as dust and debris covered them. The poor buggers who ran to the other sheller, I reckon that exploded right next to them. It was too murky to see much. Bellowing black, choking smoke came from the warehouses, which were already alight. The flames were obviously enjoying whatever was stored there as the fire rapidly became a furnace. Hey, you're bleeding, Jackie. You've cut your eyebrow, announced Pom. A large gap had opened, and the red blood streaking down Jackie's cheek was clogged with dust. Charlie ripped some material from his uniform and pressed it on the wound in an attempt to stem the bleeding. "'Out ship, be gentle!' screamed Jackie, pushing Charlie's hand away. The gap above his eye now showed an exposed wedge of steel. 
Charlie pulled at it with his right hand and used his left hand to dab the material back onto the wound again to stop the blood flow. Look at this, Jackie. You're lucky you weren't blinded. Charlie's palm held a half-inch metal square. He was painted with an unmistakable red diamond, one of the diamond pointers of the well-known Mitsubishi logo. I'll be blowed, said Pom. I don't know what this is part of, but it's come from the shipyards, that's for sure. Blimey, what force? That means it's flown for half a mile to get stuck in your head, Jackie, said Charlie. What a warrior you are, Jackie, taking the nip ships on with your skull, exclaimed Jan, erupting with laughter. But the Dutchman's laugh was cut short. They all heard the high-pitched whine, the unmistakable sound of a falling shell. Drop! yelled Charlie as he fell to the ground, dragging Jackie down with him. Pom was already crouched with his hands over his ears and head tucked in close to his body. Jan, the last to respond, lay over the prone bodies, an insulation layer to those beneath. The explosion was huge. A loud roar and sharp crack echoed as the wolf suffered a direct hit. The four men felt the tremendous power of the blast, then the shockwave as the air around them pulsed. The shell hit less than fifty yards away from where they sheltered. The bomb was actually on the small side, only a one-hundred-pounder, filled with gelled gasoline, but it was the white phosphorus inside it that ignited on impact which caused the real damage. The pylons and fuel-soaked wooden boards of the wharf were soon engulfed in flames as a tower of fire whooshed into the air from the bomb crater. The four cowering prisoners didn't need to discuss what to do next. They needed to get away from the firestorm. They ran towards the water, down to the very end of the quarter-mile-long jetty. Three lean-to sheds, a water tank, three fuel drums, and a tall, rickety stack of uncollected crates were the only structures at this end of the jetty. A strong westerly wind was blowing at their backs, and luck was with them as it drove the flames away from the men and back towards the city. The exhausted, traumatised prisoners sat at this unprotected end of the Nagasaki dockyard, watching, shivering, and waiting as the fire raged. Three hours later, they still sat in shock. The wharf now contained a huge 400-yard hole, and their part of the jetty had been completely isolated. They were perched on a little jetty island on the edge of Nagasaki Harbour. They were cut off from the wharf, from their mates, from their captors, and from the rest of Japan. To all intents and purposes... They were free. Only going home wasn't an option.